Thank you for listening to another episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, maps of the airfield, mission breakdowns, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content. They may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. Willie sat outside the boss's office, still bearing the trace of Patty's lipstick under his ear. Two fellow airmen, one from the 529th and another from Jack the Ripper's crew, shared his anticipation as they too awaited for their squadron commanders. It turned out that Willie wasn't the only one who sought a private moment with his date. This revelation eased his anxiety as he expected a milder punishment than he initially feared. The office door eventually swung open, and the boss emerged in the hallway. Gazing down at Willie, he inquired about his readiness. Willie remained silent and entered into the boss's office. Once inside, the boss instructed Willie to stand at attention before his desk. As Willie complied, he couldn't help but notice another squadron commander seated across the room from him. Behind his desk, the boss addressed Willie. Sergeant Abram, do you understand why you're here? The boss continued. You're aware of the recklessness of your actions? Willie nodded again. The boss then explained the consequences. Here's the deal, Sergeant. I won't ground you, but I will restrict you from leaving this base for the next 15 days. This means all weekend passes are canceled for you during that time. Any questions? Willie... Taken aback, acknowledged the boss's decision with a nod and a respectful salute, reciprocated by the boss. Exiting the boss's office, Willie felt a mixture of relief, but also an unexplained sense of anxiety and sadness. later, May 25th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 0430. The Quonson Hut's door opened, jolting Jack from his slumber. An orderly approached him, cigarette in hand, and gently placed it between Jack's lips. He soon illuminated the room by switching on Jack's lamp. With a casual tone, he declared, Good morning, Lieutenant Miller. You've been chosen for a mission today. He then distributed more cigarettes to every inhabitant of the hut, continuing by saying, I don't know where you're going today, gentlemen, so don't bother asking me. I'm talking to you specifically, Lieutenant Solace. What I can tell you is, it's now 0430. Breakfast is until 0515. Briefing is at 0530. And engines are set to start at 0615. I saw them filling the Tokyo tanks up, so wherever you're going, it's going to be a long haul. Therefore, I advise you drink lots of coffee and get warm food in your bellies. Good luck today, gentlemen. With that, the orderly exited, closing the door behind him. Jack observed Beck, Reinhold, and the four officers from Brolin's crew, all rising from their beds with a weariness that mirrored the walking dead. The enlisted men's mess hall buzzed with restless airmen, their anticipation palpable as they eagerly awaited their mission's assignment. 
Word of today's impending operation, rumored to be arduous and demanding, had spread like wildfire throughout the base. The thick haze of cigarette smoke that hung in the air served as a grim testament to the tension that gripped the room. Tucked away at one of the rear tables, Willie and the rest of Loaded Bull's crew sat in the weary silence. The wear and tear of the previous night's escapade at the NCO's club weighed heavily on them. Willie, in particular, bore the brunt of a mild hangover. Tommy and Marshy, though not as visibly hungover as Willie, exhibited the telltale signs of fatigue in the heavy bags beneath their eyes and the weary slouch of their shoulders. Amidst the clatter of metal trays and the low hum of anxious conversations, the crew of Loda Bull braced themselves for the mission ahead, knowing that today's assignment would demand every ounce of their skill and determination. In the officer's mess hall, Jack found himself seated at a table with Beck and the rest of his crew. His demeanor exuded a profound silence and an emotional aridity that seemed to envelop him. Beck, ever the optimist, made a vigilant effort to inject some much-needed light-heartedness to the group. He extended a small act of kindness, offering Jack his fresh pack of cigarettes when he realized that Jack was running out. Jack's strained relationship with Parnell had reached an impasse, their once close bond now fractured. They hadn't exchanged a word since that faithful night. Despite Parnell's palpable care and concern for his friend, Jack's overwhelming feeling of guilt, despair, and shame kept him from acknowledging Parnell's attempts to reach out. As Jack sat in the mess hall, he couldn't escape the sense that Parnell, seated just a few tables away from his crew, had his eyes fixated on him. It was as though Parnell was silently beseeching Jack to make eye contact, to open up and share his burdens with him just even at a look. Yet, Jack, consumed by his own emotional turmoil, steadfastly avoided any interaction that might lay bare to his internal struggles. Amidst the awkward atmosphere at the table, Jack couldn't help but notice the furtive glances coming from Brown and his crew who were seated at the far end of the same table. While they refrained from openly commenting on Jack's personal battles, their stolen glances and hushed conversations amongst themselves divulged the fact that Jack's situation was a topic of discussion, even if they chose not to vocalize their concerns to him directly. In the briefing room, Jack sat towards the front of the room and quickly drowned his overthinking mind by focusing on the information available in regards to the mission. To Jack's sudden and anxiety-riddled astonishment, the 300th was set to fly in the low wing in the second group of the formation, and the 530th was set to fly in the low squadron. Low wing and low squadron was a reality that made Jack's hair stand up on the back of his neck. Granted, at least they weren't going to be in the back of the formation, but being in the low squadron of the low group was still worrisome. Even more surprising to Jack was the fact that he and the rest of Loda Bull were selected to lead the 530th in the low squadron, with Brolin and the rest of Helling Mary flying in the number two spot, Erickson and the rest of Bitter Boy flying in the number three spot, Parnell and Fenway Bombshell flying in the number four spot, Playboy and Tailwinders flying in the number 5 spot, and finally, Leslie and the rest of Bomb McGee flying in the number 6 spot. Shortly thereafter, the briefing commenced, unveiling the mission's target, the U-boat pens in Laura Shaw, France. A collective groan reverberated through the room as the weight of the announcement settled in. Laura Shaw was a notorious target for its formidable defenses, making it a high-risk mission. Adding to the challenge was the fact that it entailed a grueling 1,300-mile round trip, spanning a daunting seven-hour flight. As Jack absorbed the details, 
his attention was intermittently hijacked by a searing pain and a relentless burning sensation in his eyes. These discomforts were consequences of his prolonged sleep deprivation. Dehydration has also begun to manifest itself in its unwelcome symptoms, but Jack resolutely brushed them aside. As the debriefing came to a close, Jack subtly adjusted his path to ensure he wouldn't cross paths with Parnell while exiting the room. His steps led him towards the troop truck where the rest of his crew was waiting for him. About 15 minutes later, the Loda Bull crew arrived at their plane, which was still in the process of having the bombs loaded into its bomb bay. Among the men was the Bull's fill-in bombardier for the mission, First Lieutenant Louis Tarnaski, the short, energetic, blonde-haired bombardier from the crew Jack the Ripper. Willie, Tommy, and the other enlisted men proceeded to walk to the back of the plane, aiming to enter through the waste compartment door. As they did, Mills heard a woman's voice shouting in the distance, catching his attention as the flight line seldom echoed with the sounds of the woman's voice. Glancing around, Mills turned and spotted a group of three women standing near the fence closest to the 530th Squadron hard stands. Mills, taken aback by the unexpected sight, couldn't help but exclaim, What the hell? Do you guys see this? The heads of his comrades turned towards the source of the commotion. Tommy's face lit up with recognition when he saw the two of the women. Holy shit, Willie. That's Betty and Patty. What? Willie asked, squinting in disbelief. Holy shit, Tommy. What the hell are they doing here? I have no idea, Tommy replied. Dropping his equipment and quickly making his way towards the women, Willie followed behind him closely. Where the hell are they going? Asked Jack, who was standing beneath the number one outboard engine, waiting for Butch to come over and brief him on the repairs made to the bull. Girls, sir, Mills replied. Jack offered a weary smile and retorted, It's always about a girl. Unfortunately, it is, sir, Mills replied his gaze still fixed on Tommy and Willie as they neared the fence. Jack couldn't help but let his mostly fugitive smile transform into a slight frown, recognizing the undertone in Mill's response that mirrored his own inner sediments. As Willie and Tommy approached the fence, both girls couldn't resist making light of their appearance, all decked out in their flight clothing. What are you gals doing here? Willie asked a hint of amusement in his voice. Patty, with a mischievous smile, explained, We heard them testing the engines last night, and I knew you'd be going up, so we wanted to see you off. Willie and Patty soon found themselves drawn toward another, their fingers intertwined through the chain-linked fence. Leaning in closer to Betty, Tommy's face almost pressing up against the fence, he said, I love you, Betty. Just don't be here when we come back in. It's seen as bad luck around here. That's when Tommy leaned in for a kiss through the fence. Betty, not reciprocating the lean-in, kept her gaze on Tommy. After an awkward moment where Tommy sat there, waiting for a kiss with puckered lips, he finally opened his eyes and looked at Betty with pure confusion. What did I say about talking like that, Tommy? It has nothing to do with luck, only fate. Just kiss him, Betty, for the love of all things love. Willie chimed in, side-eyeing Tommy and Betty's conversation. Betty glanced at her friend and Willie, and then back at Tommy. She then leaned in for a kiss, and after the two shared a passionate moment, Tommy leaned back and said, Fate? Luck? What's the difference, right? One follows the other, Betty replied. Yeah, and get sloppy seconds, Willie interjected with a playful tone. Sloppy seconds. You gotta love him, Tommy added as he leaned in for another kiss. Tommy and Willie turned reluctantly when they heard Mills calling for them to get back to the plane. Well, I guess it's time for me to go to work, Tommy remarked, a touch of resignation in his tone. Betty smiled, her eyes reflecting a mix of pride and worry as she responded, Work hard and have a good, safe day. I'll be here, waiting for you to come home with the bacon. Tommy couldn't resist the lighthearted quip, trying to lift the mood. Trust me, we're not bringing back the bacon. 
We're bringing back some of those swastikas painted on our plane. Willie chimed in with a grin saying, Yeah, what he said. And maybe some bacon. You know, good old American bacon too. Not that British shit you guys call bacon. Betty chuckled, her joy tempered by the underlying fear that she couldn't hide. I'd like that. She replied softly, her eyes following Tommy as he walked backwards towards the waiting plane, her eyes filled with both hope and the weight of uncertainty. About 13 minutes later, Jack gathered the team beneath the opposing bull. With fresh coffee distributed by Butch, Jack led the men through the day's mission. Alright men, we've got a substantial day ahead of us. Reinhold, may I have your map please? Reinhold retrieved his flight map and laid it on the tarmac, using some gear to secure the corners. Jack lit a cigarette between his fingers and pointed at the map as he began. In case you haven't already been made aware, our mission today is to bomb the submarine pens at La Rochelle, France. This means a long flight, starting with the assembly over the coast. Now, we'll be in the low squadron, low wing of Baker Group. What's the size of the formation? Jack replied, In total, about four groups, or roughly 220 forts, give or take a dozen. Beans chimed in, saying, So, we're not in Coffin's Corner. Jack responded, No, fortunately we're not in Coffin's Corner, but we're still in the low squadron, low wing, so we need to stay vigilant and sharp today. As always, conserve your ammunition. Intelligence suggests that we'll encounter more enemy fighters on our way back than on the way to the target. Now, about the flak, expect heavy flak over the target. No surprises there. After dropping our payload, we'll head northwest to retrace our path over Brittany, while avoiding the flak fields of Lorient and Nantes. We don't want to invite any trouble, right men? The men nodded in agreement. Jack then asked, Any questions? Mills inquired by asking, What's our altitude? We'll be cruising at 24,000 angels, thanks for asking Mills, because it reminds me. Butch wanted everyone to know that the oxygen lines in the waste compartment were replaced using a line from one of the hangar queens. So, please be more attentive than usual to your oxygen meters. Ensure that that ball is moving. Understood? The group nodded in agreement. Good. Any more questions? Jack asked as he glanced upward and spotted Parnell standing in front of Fenway Bombshell, receiving communion alongside members of his crew. Parnell's eyes briefly met Jack's before he averted his gaze, realizing that he had missed the question. I'm sorry, uh, what was that? Jack inquired, not even certain who posed the question originally. Yeah, I was asking what our secondary target is, asked Marshy. Jack pointed to a small town 70 miles southeast of Lori Shaw and replied, It's some military warehouse facility in Aglame or however you pronounce it. Right here. Reinhold added, Our tertiary target is a vehicle repair and storage facility in Bordeaux, France. All the way down here. Pointing to a city located about 130 miles northeast of the French-Spanish border. Willie scratched his head looking puzzled. So let me get this straight. Law, whatever this is, is our best bet for an easy day. Jack nodded with a smirk, playing along. That's right. Let's pray today's a smooth day. Who knows? Perhaps the Jerrys are intimidated because they know that Marshy's up in the air today. Jack joked, casting a wink over at Marshy. With a competitive edge, Wooly shot back. Hey now, I've got some kills too. Muth, always quick with a retort, chimed in by saying, Be needed, Wooly. Not needy. Wooly let out a fake, obnoxious laugh in response. Jack intervened to restore order. All right, all right, settle down. See, Tarnation, aren't you glad you're with us today? Jack said, looking over at Tarnaski. Beck chuckled in approval. That's a new one for sure. Tarnaski commented before Jack continued. All right, men, if there's no more questions, we should get ready for takeoff. Engine start is only, what, 10 minutes away from now. So good luck today, gentlemen. Do your jobs well, and the bull will get us home like she's done many times before. The men concluded their huddle, finishing their cups of coffee and handing them to Butch before making their way to their respective positions inside the bowl. Jack took his place in the pilot seat. As he looked through the co-pilot's window, he caught a glimpse of Parnell's face through Fenway's cockpit window. 
now regretting not saying anything to him, but it was just too late. The flare gun signaled the start of the engine operations. Jack and Beck went through their neatly perfected execution of starting the engines. In the back of the plane, the enlisted men of Little Bull huddled in the radio room, sitting on the floor. Tommy, with his back against a stack of radios, entered in anxious trance as the vibrations and deafening engine noise filled the cabin, their ominous soundtrack. He reached into his pocket for a cigarette but couldn't locate his letter. Marshy, sitting next to him, leaned in and offered his letter, to which Tommy reciprocated by extending one of his cigarettes. Soon, Mills and Muth had their cigarettes lit, adding to the scent of aviation fuel in the cabin. Loda Bull received instructions to lead the 530th Bombardment Squadron out of their hard stands, guiding them to the north end of Runway 2. Their engines roared to life as they prepared for takeoff, embarking on their mission to reach their target. Are you a fan of Snafu? Well, I have exciting news for you. Hi, I'm Seth Aaron, creator, writer, and producer of Snafu, and I'm thrilled to share Snafu's new merch store with you. Introducing the brand new Snafu Podcast Merchandise Collection, where you can now wear your love of aviation history and the Snafu Podcast with pride. From high-quality t-shirts that showcase the iconic loadable nose art, to stylish accessories, and even your very own loadable bomber jacket, there's a little something for everyone in our store. So go ahead and head over to www.snafupod.net and make your way over to the merch page and check it out for yourself. There will also be a link down in the show notes for you. Thank you guys for all of your much-needed support and feedback. It truly means the world to me. Now, enough with the interruptions. Let's get back to the podcast. The newly formed bomber formation soared 20,000 feet above the coastal city of Torquay, England, having successfully executed a turn towards the south. So far, only seven B-17s in the entire formation had been forced to abort the mission due to having various mechanical malfunctions or other issues, offering a sigh of relief for the 530th and the 300th crews, as none of them were among those who had to turn back. The brisk air at this altitude registered at a numbing minus 20 degrees, and it promised to only get colder as they ascended further into the sky. Tommy, who had now risen from his seat in the radio room, looked out through the radio room starboard side window as a means of stretching his legs. He knew that soon he'd be having to make his way to his cramped turret, where he'd spend the next four to five hours cramped up inside of his turret. Muth sat in his seat at his radio operator's desk, absorbed in a heartfelt letter from his wife back home. Though it violated regulations to carry personal items on a mission, Muth found that engaging in the ritual of reading and writing to his loved ones during these seemingly endless hours of waiting was a soothing balm for his nerves and helped pass the time more swiftly. As he reread the letter, Muth took out a recent photograph of his visibly pregnant wife. Despite his hands feeling numb from the bitter cold, he held Dawn to the photo tightly, his gaze reflecting the profound love that filled his heart. Willie, meanwhile, perched behind Jack and back in the cockpit, focused on the engine gauges, diligently monitoring them, standing by to provide assistance if needed. In the waste compartment, Beans and Mills remained on high alert, their eyes fixated on the English coast slipping by off their starboard side. The sight of the channel ahead reminded them that they were now entering dangerous territory. Beans gazed out through his gunner's opening, awestruck by the magnificent panorama unfolding before him. The early morning sun cast a warm and gentle glow over the landscape. Light, wispy clouds stretched across the vast expanse of the sky, painting the heavens with a delicate stroke of white and gray. As the sun's golden rays touched the surface below, they created a mesmerizing dance of light and shadow. The coastal towns and villages emerged from the morning mist, 
their quaint cottages and seaside cliffs bathed in the soft, eternal radiance of the dawn. The waters of the English Channel glistened like a ribbon of liquid silver, separating the English coastline from the continent beyond. Flecks of sunlight sparkled on the surface, creating a dazzling contrast to the deeper sapphire of the sea. In the tail compartment, Marshy, who despite the tension of the day's possible events, couldn't help but be awestruck by the same beauty. The view from 20,000 feet, with the light clouds aiding to the touch of texture to the canvas of the sky, was a reminder that even in the midst of wartime, moments of natural splendor could still inspire awe and wonder. It was a fleeting glimpse of the world below, a brief respite from the rigors of their mission, a reminder of the beauty that lay beneath the often turbulent surface of their lives. The moment of awe and wonder, brought about by the spectacular view of the English coast, was abruptly halted by the call that crackled over the intercom. Pilot to crew, let's test our guns in T-minus five minutes, came the directive. Tommy heard the call and felt a wave of reluctance wash over him. He had no desire to crawl into his turret, but he had little choice when Willie appeared in the radio room to assist him. Tommy carefully detached the oxygen line from the spare connection point in the radio room and proceeded to relocate himself in his equipment towards the turret's location. It was a well-coordinated ballet between the two men, executed with precision. They worked seamlessly to position Tommy's turret with the back hatch facing inside the plane. Tommy, like a seasoned performer, knew his steps by heart. He had to essentially step into the hanging ball, lower himself almost into a fetal-like position inside the cramped turret, and worst of all, he had to depend on Willie to lock the back hatch behind him, effectively sealing him inside this confined space. It was an experience reminiscent of being enclosed in the very womb that had once harbored Satan. As the metallic clunk of the hatch closing echoed throughout the tight space, Tommy braced himself for the upcoming gun test, acutely aware of the need to be ready for whatever challenges the mission would bring. It had been one hour and 27 minutes since their formation had taken shape over the southern edge of England. The mission had commenced four and a half hours ago. Now the formation was soaring above the Bay of Biscay, approximately 25 miles from the harbors of Saint-Nazaire, and they were approaching their decision point, which was located 80 miles to the southeast. The mission had been relatively quiet so far. Some light flak had appeared near the formation as it passed over Brittany, but it had lightened as they reached the western coast of France. Above them, three squadrons of P-38 Lightning fighter escorts with drop tanks crisscrossed the sky, providing protective coverage in their zigzag pattern. In the cockpit, Jack handled controls of the bull back to back granting his own fatigued arms a much-needed respite from the task of maneuvering the 30-ton fortress in formation. Throughout the morning, Jack found his mind caught in a relentless loop of thoughts. Feelings of guilt seeming from Maggie intertwined with the haunting guilt related to Marlene, and this, in turn, connected with the complicated emotions surrounding Parnell and the events that had unfolded between them. The cycle of thoughts replayed incessantly, each iteration bringing back the image of Maggie's embarrassed and humiliated expression, restarting the mental loop once more. Willie was stationed in the top turret and couldn't help but watch the P-38s flying overhead. Their engines left beautiful and dreamy white lines across the blue backdrop of the early morning sky. As he continued to observe, he noticed a sudden change in the behavior of the twin-engine escorts. They began breaking off from their pattern one by one, their movements resembling a roll as they redirected their sights to the east. Escorts are breaking off. They seem to have found something. Willie commented quickly. I can confirm. Tarnaski added. Miss, was anything announced over the intercom? Jack inquired. Negative. Muth replied. In the next few seconds, every man on board the bull strained to catch a glimpse of what had captured the escort's attention. 
The only sounds were the engine's roar and their own quickening breaths. It didn't take long before the call came over the intercom. Bandits coming in, 10 o'clock low. Hey, was that over the group channel? Beck asked. Yes, sir. Muth replied. All right, man. Let's add some swastikas to the old bull. Ain't that right, Marshy? Asked Jack. It's damn right. I'm loaded and ready for them, Chief. Marshy responded. Not if I can't get to them first. Tommy joked before Jack quickly interjected. All right, no more chit-chatter over the intercom. Let's get focused, let's get ready. Call out those fighters and make your shots count. Over the next two minutes, men like Tommy watched as the incoming swarm of bandits rose up through the sky, some dodging the incoming escort attacks, others keeping their steady course towards the formation. With his thumbs resting on the trigger button, Tommy could feel the crushing feeling of the cramped space, essentially in a tense situation like this one. With each passing minute, he felt like he was going to have a full-blown panic attack due to the unwilling anxiety. Thankfully, the anticipation was alleviated somewhat when the call came in. Four squadrons, nines coming in, 9 o'clock low, here they come! Soon, a 109 arrived within Tommy's line of fire, and as quickly as he could, he pressed down on his trigger, sending hot metal towards the German fighter's direction. However, the skilled and noticeably well-seasoned pilot quickly disappeared from Tommy's sights as it dove away after setting bullets of its own towards the 530th's direction. In the cockpit, Jack's heart once more started racing as the firefight was being played out in front of him, as well as all around him. The intercom became the soundtrack to the chaotic event. 7 o'clock low, watch it, Marshy. 109 coming around in a half row, 2 o'clock low. I see him, whoa! That was way too fucking close. 109 coming in hard, 4 o'clock low, watch him, Billy. I'm already on it, Muth. Heinrich think he's Schleck. Well, apparently he was. Shut it, Tommy. 109 coming around 4 o'clock, watch it, Marsh. What am I breaking through? Six o'clock low. I'm coming, Rush. Thanks, Tommy. I've got two one nines back here already. Jesus Christ. Seventeen down, Charlie High. Then it's coming around for us, twelve o'clock high. Jack swiftly shifted his head to catch a glimpse of the incoming fighter. Before he could react, Tracer Round zipped past his line of sight, followed by the unmistakable sounds of gunfire erupting from the nose compartment. In an instant, an ME-109 swooped down, cutting through Jack's view. Jesus, that was close! Tarnaski exclaimed. These bastards are fearless! Muth chimed in. You're telling me! Marshy agreed. 2109's coming around, escort's falling behind. 3 o'clock high. Look, they're zipping past! Willie called out. Jesus, creeps! Beans muttered, cautiously trying to fire at a passing fighter without risking hitting one of the escorts. Here comes another one, Beans! Incoming 4 o'clock! Tommy shouted. Beans swung his gun towards the oncoming fighter, and soon both he and Tommy were sending a barrage of bullets towards the approaching ME-109. However, before either of them could score a hit, a gunner from Hailing Mary struck the 109's engine, causing a thick trail of smoke to billow from it. As the wounded fighter sped beneath the bull, still trailing smoke, Tommy inquired, Was that Crispin? It indeed was. Bean confirmed. Jesus Christ, first time up and he gets one. Willie marveled. What did I come around for you, waste? Nine o'clock level. Called in Reinhold. Mills, at that moment, had his gun trained upward, tracking a 109 being pursued by an escort fighter. Upon hearing Reinhold's call, Mills swiftly swung his gun in the intended direction. Without hesitation, he unleashed a stream of fire, striking the plane's wing just as it banked to the left to pass beneath Lota Bull. The ME-109 disappeared below them, coming dangerously close to colliding with the underbelly of Lota Bull. Well. Beans called out, and Mills quickly moved to Beans' gunner's opening to witness the fighter that he had hit, spiraling downward with flames pouring out from its wing. Did you get one? Mills nodded in affirmation. Great shot, Mills. Almost took out Haley. Good shot, though. Tommy complimented. Here comes another one, Mills. Get him. Ten o'clock high. Willie called out as he, too, unleashed a barrage on the descending fighter. Careful, Willie. Here comes an escort. Beck warned. Oh, shit. Willie exclaimed as the P-38 came dangerously close to the fighter that he was targeting. 
Releasing his trigger, he noticed that two other gunners from different bombers were still pouring firepower onto the vulnerable German plane. Mills observed as the two planes sped through the formation. Unfortunately, both planes took fire as they did, and in that helpless moment, Mills, Willie, even Muth watched as both the ME-109 and the P-38 became engulfed in flames, with debris raining down from the sky. Jesus fucking Christ, stop shooting! Mills called out. Don't stop shooting unless they're out of range! Jack declared. Both the 109 and the escort are going down. Muth added, almost as if he was reprimanding Jack for his thoughtless remark. However, Jack didn't catch the emotional tone. Another 17 going down, dog level. Marshy reported. Hey, little friend Smokeman, 2 o'clock. Beck added. Sweet Jesus, one less than we gotta worry about. Jack commented as he gazed at the German fighter plummeting from the sky in countless shattered pieces. Over the next minute, the fighters began to break off their attacks or retreat, with a few P-38s giving chase. Muth soon informed the crew that the escorts were breaking off from their formation and would return to the formation once they reached the rally point. Fifteen minutes later, the formation had reached the decision point and made the southeast turn towards the initial point, which was just a mere four minutes away over St. Marie de Nair. As they passed over Reed Island, the crew of Loda Bull started their preparations for the bomb run and the expected flak. Jack had instructed the men to put on their flak jackets and flak helmets. Everyone except for Tommy promptly complied. Marshy struggled to squeeze into his flak vest and helmet within his already cramped space, and just as he managed to do so, the call came in that the formation had reached the initial point, marking the start of the bomb run. In the nose compartment, Reinhold couldn't help but notice small minor clouds hanging over the harbor. While this already had been noticed, he hoped that it wouldn't pose any problems. Seconds later, the sounds of flak filled the air, and black and dark green cloud puffs around the formation, particularly around a little bull. Flak, 12 o'clock level. Beck called out. Here we go, man. Jack responded. About a minute later, Jack realized the formation was veering away from the primary target, heading towards the designated rally point. That's when Muth's voice came over the intercom. Radio to crew. Abort primary target due to cloud cover. Proceed to secondary target. God damn it. Reynold, give me a heading. Jack requested. It's to the rally, sir. Heading 0907. Repeat, 0907. Reinhold replied. Roger that, 0907. Pilot to Bombardier, I'm turning off the autopilot. Bombardier to pilot, I roger that. Tarnaski acknowledged. Just then, a call came over the intercom that sent a jolt down Jack's spine. Ah oh, shit, Fenway's hit! Engine on fire, found the clock low! The call came from Marshy. Fenway? Jack inquired as he tried to look behind him in a split-second reaction, but realized quickly that there was no way he could see them. Yes, sir. Marshy confirmed. I'll keep an eye on them, Chief. Tommy added. For a split second, a whirlwind of questions raced through Jack's mind. Could they even make it back to base if they couldn't keep up with the formation and decided to turn back now? Would Parnell and his crew even make the wise decision to turn back? How severe was the damage to their stricken plane? The uncertainties clawed at him, threatening to consume his thoughts. However, Jack knew he couldn't afford to dwell on these doubts for long. His primary duty was to guide Loda Bull to safety and ensure the well-being of the rest of his crew. Their lives depended on his leadership, and this couldn't waver. Yet, in the recesses of his thoughts, the fate of Fenway and Parnell continued to haunt him. The temptation to shift his mental focus to their dire situation tugged at him, but Jack knew that he had to summon every ounce of his willpower to resist. It was a test not only for his own sake, but also for the sake of his crew, who relied on his unwavering resolve in these harrowing moments. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. 
You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, and Q&A episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. Your contribution is making a huge difference. Now, back to the podcast. 17 minutes had passed since the formation shifted away from their primary target and neared the decision point for their secondary objective, around 60 miles southeast. While the flak had calmed somewhat upon reaching the rally point, as they soared over Rockfort, the anti-aircraft fire surged one more time. The bull remained mostly unscathed, and from what they could discern, the other aircraft in the 530th hadn't suffered significant damage. Parnell's plane had vanished from their sights after reaching the rally point, sparking speculation and a glimmer of hope that perhaps they had safely turned back around and headed home. Marshy confirmed no wreckage in sight, and Muth hadn't picked up any distress calls from Parnell or his crew. Taking the controls back from Beck, Jack readied for the turn towards the secondary target. But just as routine set in, Muth's call disrupted the flow. Ready to pilot. We're scrapping the secondary, moving on to the tertiary. Are you kidding me? Protested Marshy. Why the hell are we not heading to the secondary? Tommy added. Didn't say. Muth replied back. Jack spoke up saying, Listen, man, tertiary is less fortified than the secondary anyways. This might work out better for us. Reynolds, give me a heading. Roger that. Navigator to pilot, your heading is 198. Again, that's 198. Pilot to navigator, 198. Roger that. As the formation veered south towards Bordeaux, Jack couldn't help but shake the concern about the extended flight route and its impact on their fuel supply. Mid-calculation, the flag suddenly ceased. Thank goodness that's over, remarked Muth. We're still in Rockfort's flock range. That can only mean one thing, Jack stated, with Willie interjecting. Fighters. Correct, Jack agreed. And we're flying without escort. Muth added. We don't need them. We got enough fight left on us. Declared Willie. Marshy chimed in. That's the spirit. I second that. I'm so done with this mission. I just need to hit something. Mills added. There they are. Seven o'clock low. Tommy soon added. As the swarm drew closer, the type and number of planes became clearer. Looks like three squadrons of 109s, announced Tommy. The 109s initiated their first attack towards the front of the formation, with a few aiming at the second group where the 300th was located. The first one to fire was Tarnaski, in the nose, who seized the small window of opportunity. Before calling in the fighter, it veered away, dodging even Tommy's line of fire. Soon, a 109 returned for another attack, targeting a plane in the 91st, flying in the high of Abel Group's wing. A cannon round hit the B-17's bomb bay, igniting its load. The resulting explosion echoed throughout the sky, every airman feeling the impact in their chests. Debris from the bomber scattered, some pieces colliding with passing planes. Holy cow, 17 down! Oh my god! exclaimed Tarnaski, watching the horror unfold. Within moments, two B-17s, one of which was the exploded plane's wingman, and a plane from the 34th Bombardment Group, flying high in Baker Group's wing, sustained substantial damage from the debris, starting to drift away from the formation. Muth, reporting it and hastily jotting down notes, heard something over the intercom that sent a shiver down his spine. 109 at 3 o'clock! Keep an eye on the Muth! The call came from Beans. Muth rushed over to his gun, but realized Beans hadn't mentioned whether the incoming plane was high or level. Trying to locate the fighter quickly, bullets tore into the radio compartment in Bombay. 
As the 109, now under fire from other bombers, flew overhead, Muth was convinced that he had been hit. Checking himself, he was astonished to find that there were no wounds, but his radio compartment bore the marks. A receiving radio struck by a bullet, his radio desk riddled with holes. A large bullet hole marked the desk corner, narrowing missing Muth as he had manned his gun. swooping in, Willie alerted, opening fire. Muth aimed upwards, catching a sight of the fire, maneuvering into position, unleashing a rapid burst towards the planes in the lead squadron, the 528th. Just as the fighter rolled to escape, it fired one last spray, hitting Tailwinder's number four engine. Oil and gasoline spewed from the wounded engine. Bean swiftly reported it, adding that Tailwinder's was now losing altitude, forced to feather its number four engine. Before Beans could relay any more, another ME-109 targeted the stricken fortress. Beans and Marshy watched as the ME-109 riddled Tailwinder's waste compartment and tail section before rolling away, taking just one non-lethal hit before disappearing. Tailwinder's is in trouble. Six o'clock low. Marshy called out, witnessing Tailwinder's drifting away further from the formation. Hey, listen, the boogeyman's closing in. Willie added before spotting an approaching bandit. Bandit, two o'clock high. Go get him, Willie. Beck urged, observing the incoming fighter aiming for their formation. He noticed the ME-109 firing at the 452nd, flying just above the 300th. As the ME-109 zipped through unscathed, Beck spotted another plane heading straight for them. Just as he moved to report, the gun on the ME-109's nose started flashing. Another one incoming! One o'clock level! Can I see it? Tarnassi exclaimed. Reinhold confirming his fire on the incoming fighter as well. From the cockpit, Beck witnessed both guns firing a barrage of tracer rounds toward the incoming threat. To his astonishment, the fighter hung in for the attack longer than normal, and while the German shots came close to hitting the bull, it was the bullets from Reinhold's gun that made contact with the cockpit, and then the engine of the incoming fighter. Following the small fireball that appeared under the belly of the fighter, Tarnaski called in Reinhold's confirmed kill. The ME-109 ceased fire almost immediately, and the dead fighter continued its path right through the formation, zipping under the bull and slowly losing altitude. You got one, Reinhold? Jack called out. Well, it looks like they're done for today, fellas. I don't see any of them coming back for another pass. Marshy called in. I can confirm. That was the last of them. Beans added. What's our outcome? How many of us did they get? Anyone get a count? Jack asked. I counted two forts up ahead. Tarnaski commented. I counted two off in the back. And our friends and tail wonders, I don't think they're going to hold off for much longer. They're really falling behind now. Marshy asked. I saw a fort leaving formation a second ago. I can't find it now. I forgot to call it in. Called in Muth. Well, how many of them did we claim? Jack followed up. Well, I know for a fact that we shot down three. Willie called in. I know I saw one, possibly two. Tommy added. That's not a good exchange at all. All the more reason why we need more escorts. Beck added. Yeah, no kidding. Well, let's hope it's the last of them until after our bomb run. Marshy, keep me updated on the status of our fallen friends in the back there, okay? Jack requested. You got it, Chief. Marshy replied. It had been 18 minutes since the fighters peeled away from the formation, and during that time only minor flak filled the sky. The formation hovered 24,000 feet above the French coast, tracing the western French coastline for the last 10 minutes. Inside the bull, tension lingered, Muth still shaken from the recent fighter attack. As far as the fate of Tailwinders, Marshy reported that they had kept up with the formation for an impressive amount of time, but over the last few minutes, the fortress officially fell out of formation, and Marshy claimed to have seen two parachutes open, but Tommy wasn't able to confirm this sighting. Reinhold sat cramped in his navigator's desk, poring over his map and stealing occasional glances through the nose compartment windows at the world below. 
His calculations and geographical observations signal the approach of their next waypoint. As the group ahead initiated their turn towards the target, Reinhold confirmed it. Navigator pilot, we're at the decision point. Your new heading is 093. Repeat, 093. Pilot to navigator, 093. Roger that. All right, man, here we go. Hopefully for the last time. You guys got your flock gear on? Beck checked over the intercom. Never took mine off. When would I have? Marcy chimed in. <laughs> fair point, fair point. Beck replied, watching the formation and eventually the bull veering sharply towards the east. Minutes later, the bull settled into its intended spot in the formation, heading towards the target, thankfully unobscured by clouds, except for some high-altitude clouds hovering northeast of the city. In the waste compartment, Beans leaned out through his gunner's opening, observing the passing French countryside below. The sporadic flack in the sky finally ceased, and just as he pondered this change, Tommy's voice crackled over the intercom. Flack stopped. What's going on? Incoming fighters again. What else could it be? Moose deducted. I agree. All right, men. Prepare for another fighter attack. Flock batteries will hold off until just before the target. Jack relayed over the intercom, his gaze scanning the skies for any sights of fighters. Bean swiftly positioned himself behind his gun, well-practiced movements honed by countless missions. He scanned the sky meticulously, anticipating the telltale signs of an incoming attack. Yet, a sense of unease gnawed at him, a subtle discomfort that grew with every lean-in movement. It evolved from a mere discomfort to a dizzying lightheadedness, unsettling in the confined space of the waste compartment. As Beans attempted to turn, his vision blurred, the world spinning into darkness. Instinctively, his gaze shifted to Mills, intending to alert him, only to find Mills slumped against the compartment wall, seemingly unconscious. The onset was swift. In Beans' last moment of consciousness, Beans watched as Mills' body slid onto the floor of the waste compartment. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Season 2 of Snafu. Please leave an honest review of our podcast if you haven't already on whatever podcast app you're currently listening on. If yours doesn't have a place to rate or comment, then leave us your thoughts on our Instagram or Facebook pages. Both links are down in the show notes. Snafu is produced by Kanto 34 Studios and is written and narrated by me, Seth Walters. If you'd like to find out more about what Snafu is and what we're all about, please visit our website at www.snafupod.net and there you will find out more information about the men of the 8th Air Force and more about the podcast itself. Thank you for listening and stay tuned next time for another episode of Season 2 of Snafu. Snafu